I've always felt this tension as both an entrepreneur but also a, a researcher of, do I build the future or do I tell the stories that shape it? Welcome back to the Entrepreneur's Studio Podcast. In today's episode, we're taking a step into the future of entrepreneurship and discussing the impact of rapid technological advancement and the mindset shifts needed in order to adapt. Our guest is anthropologist, storyteller, and frontier tech pioneer, Sam Rad. Sam Rad is the founder of Radical Next, a meta media studio and strategic consultancy creating transformative stories, experiences, and media productions that shape a positive outlook on the future of business. In our conversation, Sam shares profound insights on how emerging technologies are transforming societies and how business owners can thrive even amidst an ever-evolving landscape of radical innovation. I'm your host, Chris Allen, and this is the Entrepreneur's Studio Podcast, helping you run and grow a better business. All right, well, I want to welcome the fabulous Sam Rad to the Entrepreneur Studio. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. I know um, you know, you've spent a lot of time across the world speaking about some very interesting things that you'll talk to us about today, yeah? Yeah, happy to share it all. I'm I'm, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. In in the center of the United States, like back <laughs> home, it's good. I've been I think I circumvented the globe this week. <laughs> Absolutely. Here I am, back in the middle. Back in the middle. Well, you know, your expertise spans a wide range. And this is the interesting part. It's like, it's entrepreneurship, Mm. you know, technology, anthropology, and the future. Maybe kind of like share how these, you know, different interests kind of intersect for your work and and how you kind of made these connections to make it a career. You know, (laughs) my career, it's tough because it's in hindsight, it makes sense. When I was progressing through it, I seem crazy, usually, like a, a bit ahead. Uh-huh. Um, truth be told, when I was in uh, undergrad and university, I thought I wanted to study neuroscience or something, but I'm not a scientist, I'm a storyteller. And I just loved watching people, always. So it made sense for me to find a discipline to study academically that involved like professional people watching. Yeah. Right? Like I just kind of sit, I'm like that slightly creepy person that's like creating (laughs) narratives for every person I see in the airport. And um, I did a bit of theater and writing as well and fiction. And so I kind of grew up during this time where, right, like the the internet was new, um, social networks were just starting to come come online. Mm -hmm. And I was noticing even in classes, it was this shift from like an analog reality so taking notes on paper to digital reality where people were bringing not cell phones yet, but you know maybe a laptop and just watching these people. And so I go to the department and I'm like, I, I wanna study like anthropology of the internet. Like I don't wanna go off to some jung- jungle and observe people. I wanna do this in, in the digital world, like go travel there. And they're like, what do you mean travel? to the digital world. Yeah. So it was a bit tough to convince departments of what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I found sort of a one-to-one comparison of the equivalent of like if I were to go again to some remote village and live there for six months and it was a virtual community, a virtual world called Second Life. Um, this was 2008, 2009. Wow. So I lived there for six months. I mean, obviously I still was here as a human body, but you know, did anything from, you know, the the aspects of life that you would study as an anthropologist. So 
um, the in-world economy, the in-world currency, which was called the Linden dollar. And I needed money. So I made these digital t-shirts and I sold them in this world for the in-world currency. And I'm like, well, okay, I can buy stuff, like go to a concert. I saw Fat Boy Slim in concert with that money. And I'm like, this is like real for yeah. all purposes. But this was very early, right? And we're now talking like 15 years ago. So I don't know what happened at some point through this, <laughs> this research. I also was like, I want to start a tech company. I must have been completely insane. Uh, I was studying theater at the time and like writing plays about the future and decide I'm just going to build the future instead. And, you know, that was about a 10 year side journey for companies later uh-huh. where, you know, I've, I've always felt this tension as both an entrepreneur, but also a, a researcher of, do I build the future or do I tell the stories that shape it? And so I kept going back in. I built a, a few companies early in artificial intelligence, uh, one that was early in blockchains. My research was in these immersive realities and simulations. So, you know, I, I would keep getting to a point as an entrepreneur where I was like, I don't think I can make the change in the world that I would like to, like a positive impact, at least for me, I'm not saying for others, mm-hmm. taking that approach uh, just because of the way that the business models would be structured. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of a really serendipitous path, this journey of really being fascinated with humanity and the human condition and the impacts that these emerging technologies, of course, in our era, the digital you know, mm-hmm. technologies, but if we look through the, the course of human history, I mean, uh, in my talks, I go through history, right? And so yeah. we have these revolutions. Stone Age, the Mesolithic era where we learn to harness fire and stone tools. We move into writing and communication, you know, and then mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. blast off till now. So really it's always just been this fascination with the, the convergence of technology and society. So how did you discover, I'm not a scientist, I'm a storyteller? For me, you know, I've always had a bit of a creative impulse, again, both from, you know, writing my own fiction or writing... Uh, plays or mm-hmm. trying to help help people understand like it's the creative impulse we all we all have it I yeah. believe every human has a you know a creative impulse and that's something that I'm really passionate about working with people to find like their authentic expression mm-hmm. and fully embody that so for me you know it's quite clear in my family of perhaps like a lineage of storytelling like I can imagine many many generations ago just like the ones that carried the oral tradition but like with a little flair let's be real I mean I need to keep myself in check with my stories so you know it was something that I always gravitated towards I knew that the formats whether it was written like I'd write stories I was very imaginative I'd perform them on stage or direct plays and Again, like when I say I went on, it wasn't really a side journey, but I went on this journey of building technology companies. And through each one, I realized that the part that I liked the most was the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Whether you want to call that marketing or positioning or, mm-hmm. or literally like my first company, I filmed the whole thing mm-hmm. and it turned into a reality TV series. Uh, I thought I was making a documentary about the building a company post 2008 financial crisis. Like I was like a documentarian. I thought I'd be a foreign correspondent. Like I I thought I was going into journalism. Next thing you know, I'm building companies and documenting them. So again, it was a series of smaller insights of seeing really where my own impulse was. And then also knowing that my role here, again, because I do believe we as individuals have sort of a, a role of service to humanity and mm. societies. And 
when I realized I could make a bigger impact on shaping the future by telling stories that empower people to, to build that future and then releasing it freely. So instead of me trying to own that very small swim lane, either by building a company or investing in a company or advising it or consulting, but actually just like freely giving mm -hmm. and empowering others, you know, that was like, it took a lot of personal development work and yeah, non-attachment sure. stuff. Cause we, you know, want to like kind of own and control. Yep. Um, so it was a mix of things. It wasn't so much knowing, oh, I'm a storyteller. This is my place on this planet. It was, yeah, I know I like this. I know the impacts it has when I do it. And again, everyone has their own beautiful expression. Mm -hmm. But for me, there was also a bit of tension where it's like, I, I do this, but then how do I like own or control the process? And letting go of that was, I think, the point for me where... I realized I was able to have a bigger impact on empowering others as opposed to necessarily like empowering my success and my, mm. my journey. Yeah. I had to let that go. Well, that seems like you had a journey of discovery and probably, you know, all these different pursuits. And I definitely want to circle back and talk about kind of what got in the way with the, the business aspect uh, and what roadblocks or why you decided to, to take an alternative path. But what's the path you're on today right now to do the empowerment thing? So all of the stuff that you learned, what, what path and what direction and trajectory are you on today to make that contribution to society? It's going to take on a lot of forms. And I've, I've, Again, as a, a linguist, as a storyteller, I, I think the power of words are, you know, words are incredibly powerful. So I'm very selective of how I, I try to describe this. Mm. I've categorized it as meta media, so beyond multimedia, to capture not only formats of storytelling that could be traditional, let's say written or spoken or video formats or immersive experiences, so mm -hmm. like virtual reality, augmented realities, but actually things that go beyond it in the ways that I work with people. So kind of, you know, I've been known to run events on stages that are kind of in involving different frequencies of sound and music and in ways actually like almost like a guided visualization to, to share in collective envisioning of mm. the infinite possible realities we can shape for the future and aligning to one. So we have so many narratives, right, of fear and um, discord and, and particularly in the mainstream media. So it's for me, like I know for sure uh, the way what I've aligned to is narratives that shape a positive viewpoint on what's to come mm. and empowering others to do that for themselves. In an ideal world, people will not need me to come in and do, do this, but almost guide people to, to feel that comfort um, with the uncertainty mm. and actually find more certainty in their path. But yeah, quite literally it's, you know, I have some books coming out, probably a, a number of media formats and storytelling. And, you know, I, I, again, try not to control the process so much of the way that it comes out because whether I, uh, again, I do a lot of public speaking. So I'm often on, on the road, on tour mm -hmm. with people in presence, whether that's 10 people, a hundred, a thousand, 10,000. You know, yeah. and I, I do a lot of one-to-many work where it's just sort of getting getting a group of people all on the same wavelength, and yeah. it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I would say five years ago, I'd stand and let's say it's like a thousand people, maybe one of a thousand, I would feel a resonance with because mm -hmm. I can feel it, right? Like I'm yeah. trying to tap in, I'm trying to get us all here. <sighs> then it was fifty percent, and recently, 
you know, and I'm going around the world. This isn't just US centric. Yeah. I'm both feeling a, a fear and uncertainty for the future, naturally so, but also I'm feeling almost 100% connection and resonance and a willingness to embrace newer ideas or, or the shaping of what's to come. Yeah. And, you know, I'll give an example. I was very early in these mindsets of decentralization or blockchains mm-hmm. or, and it was really scary to talk about because what people were hearing in between the lines of what I was saying, um, of course, cause this was just a natural evolution, this, this world of the way that we form trust with other human beings. Mm-hmm. So again, as a, archaeologist, anthropologist of both past, present, and future. In the past, we were analog. We were face-to-face, Yep. right? So if you sold me something, I'd be, give you money or I have a ledger with an IOU. I know where to find you yeah. and deal with it if something goes wrong. Then we move into this globalized context um, where we now have trust proxies, right? Institutions, banks, mm-hmm. governments, uh, education systems, in 2008, I think was kind of the, a very big example of seeing some gaps in that system. I'm not saying there's not a place for that system. Mm-hmm. Just saying that it was clear there were gaps and we see it across the board. Yeah, when they're Where, shaking, everybody's shaking. Yeah, everyone was shaking and then you're seeing, let's say even media or social media and then distrust of uh, things like fake news and then starting to see it now as we've evolved technologically and we have things like artificial intelligence, deep fakes, clone, you're, you're like, what do I trust? Nothing. Yeah, so yeah. blockchains or the Bitcoin white paper, you know, written post 2008, uh, so 2009, around this time, it was an early response to saying, okay, that these institutions or trust proxies don't make sense. We need an alternative. But that wasn't the end. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I was talking about it. People are like, who's this crazy person saying like, there's going to be things that come next, new business models, new ways of forming this community, this trust. People are there now. So now I'm focused on what's next. Cause mm. that wasn't, there's no end game. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. just deeper, like it, it, it's gotta evolve. Like one of the things that I think is really interesting about the, the what happened is there was sort of a behind the veil, these institutions, everything was sort of behind the veil. You, you couldn't see past the glass, yeah. right? And blockchain brought everything, you know, sort of like you could go look. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I'll give an example that's like very resonant for me at this moment and I think will probably make sense to a lot of people. Intellectual property, right? So even there's like my likeness, hello, hello uh, my voice, my, my being, my writing, all of this stuff as a storyteller that is like put out into the, the, the grand abyss. And so we have entire institutions, legal systems, protocols, patents, trademarks, these systems in place that make an assumption about the idea of private property or ownership. Mm-hmm. But they did not account for the fact that tomorrow, if someone wanted to take this podcast and take my voice and take my likeness and make a hundred other podcasts and then draft a book based on our conversation to sell back to me a day later mm-hmm. and then make a whole TV series, AI generated right away. And again, this is happening now. Oh yeah. Like, right. It didn't account for that. So for my own thing, and again, as I already told you, I'm, I've learned to kind of let go with non-attachment. But when I think of the ways that companies are formed, we've built entire business models around it, entire companies around these mindsets, and they simply cannot, that doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. Or we need to change the regulations or the ways that we think about it. You know, these are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about. It's not in some destructive manner. 
saying, oh, do away with traditional institutions. There's a place for all of them and there should be. But it's also that all of us on every level of society, individuals, collectives, institutions, governments, groups of governments need to also be thinking about the, the accelerating and radically shifting landscape that we find ourselves in and recognize that maybe these models don't work. So again, IP or non-disclosure agreements, right? I'm, I signed these contracts over many, many years building businesses. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a business person as well, an entrepreneur. I, I'm fairly aware of how contracts work and intellectual property, have a number of patents, managed legal teams. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, I won't sign this. Doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. How does it make sense? You know, when a concept is tomorrow, like ChatGPT has been trained on the collective intelligence of all of humanity, and language that I'm using is probably used by 10 million other people because mm-hmm. they've been fed the same thing and we've fed it the same thing. How do I sign this contract? Mm-hmm. And then people think I'm crazy and they're like, how dare you? But I think. You know, I'm the person that will say the things that we're thinking, that's my role. If I can do it in a way that's a little bit more gentle through fun stories, I tell whimsical stories often. I tell a story of collecting these special rocks as a as a child with my brothers to essentially critique the global financial system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're like, why? Oh, it's so cute. And people laugh and I'm like, yeah, it's cute. But if I stood up on stage and sat here and just like did doom and gloom stuff, yeah. that, that's not. As powerful. Well, talk to us. Like, I think one of the, the things that you talked about is the contribution you wanted to give to the world and what you felt like. I'm just going to say maybe a, a part of your purpose. Yeah, yeah. You, you started these companies and there was sort of something in the way, right? So talk about what building a company and coming to the conclusion that like, this isn't me. What was sort of the the crux, the the moment where you were like, this stuff is in the way and I need to be make a different contribution? Why was business sort of the building traditional business? Yeah, yeah. That's a great question too, because I am I am like a entrepreneur and business person as much as I am a storyteller to my core. Mm-hmm. I grew up as a child of a, a family business. So um, multi-generation, yeah. you know, immigrant to the country, built business, pass it on to the kids. They expanded it before to my generation that was done. And I grew up with this mentality, you know, of, of a fairly traditional way of, of building things, of scaling a business. You know, uh, my dad, who's given me a lot of business advice, right, is more like couldn't comprehend the idea of investors. You know, yeah. it's like you take a loan, you work, you pay it back, you build a profitable, a business must be profitable from the beginning, like, you know, and so, these are the values that I have mm-hmm. um, been raised with. And I still uh, align to those values. Of course, like, you know, anytime there's a financial or energetic exchange, it's sort of a business. So I'm not, you know, sitting here being like, I don't, I don't do it. And I don't close the door to the possibilities of what is to come in the future. Mm-hmm. Though I did have a moment where I said, I'm never doing this again. And I can kind of hit rewind now. So my entrepreneurial journey, The first company, which was a startup, they were all technology startups, but the first one I built with the mindset of this very lean family business mindset. 
You know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking in my head, this will Bootstrap. be a 20, 20 year journey for me, 30 for the rest of my life. I was naive, right? I didn't realize the purpose of building those companies was to like flip it in five years. And my goal was to build a billion dollar unicorn. Once I realized that that was the game that I, that I was supposed to be playing, I was like, okay, um, I'll play this game. So then to venture back, the, the middle one was like sort of an experiment. Then there was two more after that, that were... Uh, the traditional like Silicon Valley mindset. Yeah, go fast, take on a lot of uh, investor like capital. Mm-hmm. Where the pressure, the first one was you know no success, no return until a billion dollar company. The most recent and my last one was a Decacorn. My goal was a ten billion dollar company that was given to me by the board. I was like, not to say that that's not possible. But it, that's the way the funds are structured, right? Like bet on a ton of things and hope that one succeeds for that return. The rest, it doesn't matter. And when, for me, one, I felt a little like we're devoting our lives to this and I'm building teams as if they're family. And yeah. many people say, don't call them family. They're not, they're coworkers, fine. Maybe I don't call them family, but these are human beings that I care very deeply about yeah. as a leader. It can be something different. I do care. No, look, like... You know, and I went through a, a number of very eye-opening, shocking decision-making processes as a founder, as a leader. And I've been in a number of roles. The first one was CEO, then CTO, then chief product officer, chief marketing officer, back to CEO. I've done it all, trying to, yeah. <laughs> to be like, which one? And either in all of those experiences, of course, I was very deeply involved, personally hiring every person who mm-hmm. ended up on our team, curating that, creating the the culture and deeply connected. And the second to last one, we went through what I, I wouldn't say like a hostile takeover, but you know, the natural course of a company shifting and uh, went through you know, laying off most of the team with mm-hmm. me being the last to go because I was standing for something mm-hmm, different mm-hmm. and it would have been um, unhealthy for the new culture they were building. And it was just heartbreaking you know, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, okay, if I need these skills, almost like sociopathic skills to succeed, this is not what I want to do. And this was also around the same time where I was realizing there were different models, Mm -hmm. whether you're just building a, again, like a sustainable business with the values that had been instilled on me, like a family business, that doesn't mean you can't scale it and make it a massive company Mm -hmm. or new models that I had been researching again, in the blockchain or Web3 or decentralized space, which I was always way more interested in the idea of community and organizational development from that space than the currency. And so if you look past things like trading monkeys and Bitcoin, (laughs) there are a lot of really interesting experiments on the the societal level of how do we um, structure and govern people in new ways like decentralized Mm -hmm. autonomous organizations and even look at the governance or lack thereof of something like a Bitcoin. So, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, maybe we can do new ways of collective value creation, whether you call that a company or something else. Mm -hmm. And I experiment with those. I've been anonymously involved in quite a few of them, just either contributing or observing. And for myself, probably at so, you know, I even do this in my community of... uh, fellow speakers, educators, writers of, you know, well, maybe we, we bring together a network and amplify all of our messages, you know, while staying in our own individual areas of interest, but also building sort of a collective and what is that, how do we structure that both legally, 
within the existing system, but also, you know, what are the protocols in place to, I don't know, like share value, uh, attribute rights to something, send payment workflows. So again, my door's not closed <laughs> to, yeah. to collective value creation with other people, companies, entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah. My personal belief system is that the model, this very like American startup Silicon Valley thing, I don't know if I should say, I'm gonna say it out loud, I guess. This is the first time that I'd say it, you know, is I don't, I don't think it's gonna work anymore. And I think mm. we've already seen these, these trends playing out and it might just be another cycle, but you know, placing big bets on, on things and just expecting returns in that asset class I'm not knocking on entrepreneurship. I think that's the lifeblood of this country and many other countries. And we need to absolutely find ways to support entrepreneurs. Yeah. We will, that is like, would say my number one focus on how we will kind of make it through these transitions that are coming, both technologically, perhaps geopolitically, and more. But there needs to be new ways to support entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship and innovation. You're talking about the in, the investment models of like yeah, yeah. angel to venture backed to private equity. You're you're talking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there's I don't have like, oh, here's the plan and, yeah, and this yeah. is the new model, but there needs to be a different model just for the well-being of people as well. I think it stifles innovation and creativity. Especially when, it, again, if you're thinking of it from an investor perspective, of like I'm placing bets on 100 companies, mm -hmm. one will succeed. I want a proven model. I'm not going to place a bet on something completely out there and yeah. crazy. I'm not going to place a bet on a team that's like innovating with some new organizational structure. I'm going to do what, let's say, like the past, like past 20 years. Okay, there were all of these. Uh, it was like Uber for this, the rideshare, yeah, yeah, you know, totally. that whole economy. And I talk about in many of my talks where that came from, right? It was the opening of data, geolocation data and Google yeah. Maps. But like that was a 10 year process where it was so easy to place bets on like Uber for toothbrushes. I don't know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like for literally anything. just fill in the blank or same thing with the subscription box model. And that came about just because advertising was cheap on social networks. As mm -hmm. soon as the, like the Casper mattress was the first sort of oh, yeah. one, I think that they were doing these things. And I don't, I think that's helpful to take the, an innovative idea and then scale it. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessarily, I think we're missing out on finding a way to support things that are different. Yeah. And we're going into an era, which I call the age of acceleration. Uh, I won't say I coined it. I was, you know, actually Thomas Friedman used this sort of language in like 2007 mm -hmm. um, in a speech. So I try to cite where I can, though I haven't like found like who's like said this is where yeah, we who's are. Who's the source, the actual source, originator. <laughs> <laughs> the collective consciousness zeitgeist. Um, but, you know, that's, it's taken me five years really to, to try to create a bucket for this progression that we find ourselves now, mm -hmm. if it was you know information age before that, industrial revolution before that, yeah. again I go through history, oh, yeah. and I also have a few that are coming next that I I reveal you know behind closed doors or or here it's just sort of this moment that we find ourselves now where it does feel like that that point on the exponential curve 
um, where the convergence of these technologies, particularly like of the moment, this discussion around artificial intelligence, oh, yeah. right? But also fresh, like the fresh rider the, strike and the, everything. The super, the, the supercharged energy when you start talking about like quantum computing and, mm-hmm. and the fuel on that fire. And then again, things like my research, immersive realities, where like there could be five of me doing five different things in different places right now. This starts to get a little, I would say, destabilizing for mm-hmm. people and certainly for the structures we have in place. So again, in order, it's so easy when I, let's say like we'll close a talk and I'm like three takeaways for, for the future, like adaptability. We say these words, yeah, yeah. we say adaptability. Uh, we'll this, say this will be workforce. the fastest anyone will ever have had to adapt in human existence. Every day. Yeah. There is something, it's like, you know, something that might've taken 10 years, it's now 10 days, could be 10 minutes. And again, I'm telling you, I could be doing this right now and this is going to the cloud and I am going to listen to a Spotify song because I love music. And there will be a song that is generated with lyrics based on this conversation that are, that's tuning into my, like the feeling that it (laughs) thinks that I'm having. And like one, how do you live in that reality as a human being? Mm How do you build businesses in that while also being empathetic to, to the world uh, that we're in and, and this feeling of moving quickly without completely just either shutting down or giving up? Because that's not the answer. But mm-hmm. we need to, um, let's say on a macro level, support structures that account for this and support adaptability, both with entrepreneurship, like not placing bets on proven models. Proven models will not work. So... For me, I I think proven models that may may not you can't really count on them in the future. Right? Can't count like, on there I are mean, new models emerging. Yeah, so it's where to look at those new models, but also to support with your own process the work, the the almost personal development. I mm-hmm. like to tie in a lot of like the personal development with leadership because it's important. If you don't start with here, self yeah. and center, how possibly can you do that with a team or again like beyond? And a lot of the people I work with too, again, groups, whether it's on a stage or in a leadership team or a company um, is really focused on that and just developing the skills and the confidence in oneself mm-hmm. to, to be able to navigate and trust that, you know, it's, it's all okay. It's just the, the change feels, again, it's fast. So yeah. my work comes from a place of positivity and optimism. I don't need to go in and instill fear that yeah. exists. Everyone feel I, I feel it yeah. and transmute it to optimism and again hope to empower people to change fear into opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio podcast. For links to the resources mentioned in today's episode or for more information on how we can help you build, run and grow better businesses, visit estudio.life or see the show notes of this episode. The Entrepreneur Studio Podcast is produced by Mark Caffiero and Stephen Roach, with video post-production by Sean Levitt, talent booking by Megan Radford, guest acquisition by Tyler Moss, promotion by Katie Hackett, project management by Julie Smith, and additional support from Sarah Robison. The Entrepreneur Studio is co-founded by Jeff Maines. Our executive producer and host is Chris Allen. Music is provided by Amber Spill. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever podcasts are available. The Entrepreneur Studio is powered by Heartland. 
When people want a partner they can trust to help them build a remarkable business and make every day work better, they do it with Heartland. Because we're entrepreneurs, we're people, and we get it.